Social justice means applying the law equally to all people. But in practice, that doesn't always happen. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here at my law partner, Jack Derora. We practice law. We seek social justice. On this show, we reveal the conflict between the two. You know, for a while, it was just us in the office over a cup of coffee talking about the news of the day with social justice issues dominating our culture. Our focus became, how do we as lawyers make a difference? And now it's not just us. Today, we have Rachel Muha with us to discuss forgiveness. Good morning, Rachel. Good morning. Jack, um... A couple weeks ago, I did a parole hearing for a um, a gentleman. Uh, Ohio changed its law and said that if you were convicted of a felony as a youth, you get to have an attorney at your parole board hearing. This gentleman, 30 years ago, when he was 17, uh, killed a man, robbing him. And um, what was remarkable about the parole hearing was the victim's daughter, who was 10 at the time, wrote a letter on behalf of of my client basically saying I forgave him for this and um, the parole board wanted to make sure it was legitimate that Mm. she did it on her own right and I spoke to her and what a remarkable lady I mean now she's 40 years old she'd been in the military and she says nobody could make me do anything, uh, especially this. But she told me that the forgiveness that she gave was more for her than anything. Um, But she also wanted him to be freed because she thought that he had spent enough time. He was remorseful. So um, it it when I read her letter to the parole board, it brought a tear to my eye because I thought, what a remarkable thing to do. Right. And I wonder if I would have that same compassion or ability. You ever think about that? All the time. And I have a couple matters in my life not involving murder where I'm still harboring some anger and I haven't forgiven the person who's in my mind. Um, And it's interesting that you said this woman commented that she she extended forgiveness primarily for herself because I read somewhere that holding on to anger and hatred is similar to picking up a hot coal so that you can throw it at your enemy. Oh, boy. Uh, Rachel, you um, have forgiven the, uh, the, the two men that killed your son. And, um, and I think, again, what, what a remarkable thing to be able to do. But you also took it uh, steps further. You're involved with helping people so that they don't become those, those types of people that would commit murder. And so I'm, I'm so happy to have you on the, uh, the program today. Could you tell us a, a, just a little bit of background about what happened to your son? I know it's, it, it's been a while, but I'm sure as a mother, it's still fresh in your mind. Yes. Actually, some days it's as if it was just happening. And other days, it, the reality of it being 24 years ago and not being able to see Brian or hear Brian all those years is... Mm-hmm. heartbreaking. Um, Brian was almost 19 years old. He had just finished his first year of college, but was going to be back on campus for five weeks in the summer to take some summer classes. 
And so he went back to Franciscan University on May 30th and was going to be living in an off-campus house uh, with two friends. And they had a cookout that night, and then they all fell asleep. Brian fell asleep on the couch, and the other two guys fell asleep in the bedrooms that were in the house. And early that next morning, May 31st, about 4.30 or so in the morning, two young men broke into the house. They were the same age as Brian, um, did not know anybody in the house. They lived in the inner city of Steubenville and were driving around in a car that didn't belong to them. Um, and they had a gun and they were high on crack and they were trying to decide which house to break into just uh, any, any house. And they chose the house that Brian had just moved into. And when they broke in, they saw Brian asleep on the couch. And so they, um, they assaulted Brian, and of course he, you know, woke up with the pain that they had inflicted and tried to fight back. Um, and the other two in the house heard the commotion. One came out; he got uh, hurt very badly. Um, the other one ran to call the police at the neighbors, and the two who broke in took Brian and his friend Aaron and drove them outside of Steubenville and into Pennsylvania and made them climb a hill in Pennsylvania and um, that's where they killed them. I'm so sorry that, um, that you had to um, recite that for us. Um, but it, it does lay the groundwork for what you did after that, which um, is you you sought to forgive uh, these two uh, boys. Can you can you talk a little bit about how you came to that uh, conclusion sure. for your life? Sure. Um, so we got a call later that day saying that Brian was missing from the uh, police department, and from that moment on. Um, I just started praying the Our Father, asking our Lord to help us get through this. But in the words of the Our Father are these words, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And those words were first and foremost in my mind. You know, I grew up memorizing that prayer. I prayed that prayer many times and, and like we might often do when we have something memorized we just say the words and don't think about what they what they mean and and we were searching for brian for a whole week and that was the one and only prayer that i could even remember uh, let alone pray and when i would get to those words each day i knew what i was required to do and i had to think about what does that mean, though? What is this forgiveness that I'm supposed to give? And why am I supposed to give it? And so with a lot of thought and a lot of prayer, I came to the realization that forgiveness means to refuse to have any ill will towards someone who has hurt you, to refuse that anger and hatred and bitterness and revenge, to refuse it. 
and that forgiveness is an act of our will, not an act of our feelings. We will never forgive somebody if we wait to to get to the point where we feel like doing it because we're human and and what has happened to us always hurts. So you're never going to do it if you feel like it. You have to forgive even when you don't feel like it. And you have to make that forgiveness productive. So not only is it to refuse anger and hatred and bitterness, but it's to bring in goodwill towards the person who hurt you. And that's not, not that's not easy. You that's sound, the hardest thing. It sounds like you started that process before you really knew anything about the two men, um, the one gentleman, Nathan Herring. Did you find things out later that, that made it even more difficult to, to not have that type of um, ill will and anger towards them? Can you tell us anything about their upbringing other than they're from the inner city? Yes. Yes. We didn't learn anything about them, though, until the trials, which were a whole year later. Um, I did forgive them before I knew anything about them, N not because I knew anything or didn't know anything. It was just because I knew that's what I should do. I saw all my family members. I saw what this was doing to them. I saw the pain that they were um, carrying because Brian was missing. Um, I saw the Brian's friends from high school, young 19-year-olds who didn't know how to handle this in their life. And I knew that they were all looking towards me. And however I would respond is how they were going to respond. And I knew my family. I knew what good people they are. And yet I saw this anger inside of them. And I thought, if there's anything I can do, it's to lead the way to help them get through the anger and the bitterness. So it was like four days after Brian was missing and we still hadn't found him. And I said those words out loud that I forgive these men, that I got this intense p feeling of peace and comfort, even though my heart was broken and the pain is still there. You know, the pain doesn't get taken away. But the clarity of mind enters in. When you're angry, you say things and do things that you don't mean, you know. But when you can think clearly, then you can do what the, the situation needs. And I noticed that when I said I forgive these men, my son Chris forgave them. And my God bless them. My parents were still alive. And, and they were suffering for their daughter and for their grandsons. And they were able to forgive. So, so it was it was such a such a blessing. Um, later during the trials, and when we learned about what their lives were like, that was heartbreaking to think that those two boys and everyone around them were growing up so deprived of yes material things, but that's nothing compared to what they were really deprived of and craved, which was love and attention. They just needed some somebody in their lives who really loved them and would guide them. They had no fathers. Their mothers were in and out of prison. Their older brothers and uncles were drug dealers and, and they dealt with people by assaulting them or you know worse. And that's what Terrell and Nathan learned as little boys. They were little boys once. They weren't born killers. 
You know, they became killers. And I think a lot of people are responsible for what they did. But they're the ones that did it. I wonder, well, first of all, I'm just struck that you took it upon yourself to go down this road of forgiveness so as to be the leader of your family, so to speak. I'm curious when friends and other family members learned of the position you took, did any of them just shake their heads and say, Rachel, this is crazy talk? Yes, many of them did. Tell me about that. Yeah, I have one cousin who's the most gentle soul ever. And when I heard him say the words, just give me 10 minutes with those guys. And my heart broke because this was a good, solid, gentle man. And and yet he wanted to hurt somebody. And so um, when I said, you know, that I forgive them, he said, "I, I don't know how you can do that. I don't I don't understand it at all. But if you're going to do it, then I'm going to do it. At least I'm going to try. But I still have cousins who will talk to me about that whole terrible time that week after Brian was killed and say that they just they just have so much anger that wells up in them. Anger can be productive sometimes, but it can also be so deadly. And so to to know that they are trying to control that anger and what would it have been like if if we hadn't made that act of forgiveness just is a place where I don't want to go. I don't know what would have happened to the family. You know, after Brian's death, the family really came together and that was beautiful. I don't think that would have happened without that act of forgiveness. I know that what I'm doing now, what I've been doing for the last 24 years wouldn't have happened without that act of forgiveness because forgiveness gives you a peace. And no matter how big or small the thing is that you have to forgive, you're going to gain that peace of soul and then you can move on. Then you can turn the evil thing into something good. This story I related to you about my client, um, he grew up in the projects without a mother and father, took to the gang life. They were robbing um, uh, homeless people and drug abuse people, and he came across this this guy that he ended up killing. But he went to prison. He could not read or write and took programs in prison, got his GED, can read, write, does music. So, so we know that that with the proper structure and the proper help, uh, you know, people can can get that help they need. So since your son's death, uh, tell us what, what you've been doing to help other kids avoid what, uh, what, what these two um, boys, um, you know, ended yeah. up doing. Well, at first, um, my family came to me and said, you know, we want to do something in Brian's memory. So we started a nonprofit called the Brian Muhoff Foundation to raise money for inner city kids to go to good schools so that they can get a good education. That was our main focus. And so we were having fundraisers and doing that. But I knew inside of me that there had to be more there. There had to be hands on with children in the inner city. And so we started sort of like a division of the foundation called the Run the Race Club. 
And it's called that because uh, in scripture, it tells us to throw aside every encumbrance that clings to us and persevere in running the race that lies ahead. And nobody but inner city children have more encumbrances. I think they are our forgotten children. They're, they are our whole forgotten part of our society, part of our culture. They live lives that no one should live. And again, it's not, I, I was naive enough to think, you know, they need food, they need clothing, and they need shelter, and then they'll be fine. But it's not true. It's not the case. We have children in the Run the Race Club who are the children of parents who are addicted. Most of our children are um, living with some sort of addiction in the house, which also brings some mm -hmm. violence and, and a lot of neglect. Um and that's just heartbreaking. And so we started at first an after school program where children could come to this is we're on the west side of Columbus. So children could come to the center after school for food and tutoring and homework help, but also for sports and music and dance and any kind of activity we could think of to offer to, to them, to draw them in, because our objective is to give them a safe place to be surrounded by people who really love them. Their objective in coming to the center is just to be off the streets and to have some fun, like any child would want. And now we have the after school activities, but we also have day school activities for children who just were struggling or for many reasons couldn't stay in in their neighborhood school so they come to our multifamily home school and are taught by retired teachers or teachers who have stopped teaching you know publicly for some reason or another and volunteer their time and help the children um, get caught up academically but then also give them all kinds of love and attention their classes are one-on-one -on -one or or two-on-one, -on -one, and so they get a lot of attention from the teachers, and they're thriving. It's beautiful to see. I can see in your face how proud you are of your organization. Can you? Did you have some background to be able to organize this type of, um, um, uh, you know, an effort? Um, no, I didn't. Um, I did some volunteer work myself, you know, when, when the boys were growing up, when my sons were growing up, but, um, and I, I did help with a, with a, some homeschooling at one point, Brian wanted to be homeschooled. So I homeschooled him for two years, but no, nothing like this. I mean, you know, we have a 26,000 square foot center now and a farm that, and both the, the center and the farm were given to us by this wonderful benefactor. We have hundreds of children who come through the center every week and extra things that we do like a land contract program and and other ways that we try to help the community become more stable, friendly, safe. Um, so no, I just uh, I just decided, you know, if I see a need, I'm going to try to fill it. And if, if we succeed, great. If we don't, well, we'll try some other need, you know, and that's what we've been doing. Rachel, you're giving voice to an idea that probably would not be received openly in most circles, which is 
violent crime probably almost, well, let me start all over again. Violent crime generally emanates from people who lacked who lacked everything they needed to develop as fully developed human beings. And yes. that's just not a popular thought these days. Right. I want to know, did you ever meet the men who killed Brian? So um, I purposely did not look at any of the media that was covering Brian's, you know, being missing and then his death because I was afraid that if I saw their pictures, Terrell and Nathan's pictures, that that anger that I was fighting so hard to get rid of would well up in me. So the first time that I saw them was at their trials. And I remember the, Nathan's trial. He was already seated at the table when we came into the courtroom. And so we were very close. You know what a courtroom looks like. You're very close. And Chris and I and my parents and everybody, all the family sat down. And I looked at Nathan and I saw that he had his two fingers up on his cheek and he was just kind of like leaning on the table. And I looked at those two fingers and I thought one of those fingers could have been the one that pulled the trigger. Mm. And this anger just overtook me. And I looked at Chris, my son, who was looking straight ahead with a very hard look on his face. So I knew he was thinking the same thing. And I knew I had to forgive again. And that's one thing I want people to understand about forgiveness. It's not a one-time deal. You have to do it over and over again because things come up. But I tried to look at Nathan then as that little boy that used to stand at a bus stop or had nobody to take care of him. And I wanted to see him that way because whatever was really traumatic in his life was where he was frozen in his mental state. And that helped a lot. And so then as the trials went on, at, when they were over and they were both found guilty, we were allowed to make victim statements. You're familiar with those. And I did not want to talk about what this did to me. I wanted to take that time because I was afraid it was maybe the only time. I wanted to take that time to tell Terrell and Nathan what this did to them hmm. and that what they could do to grow from it. And so I did. And and my son Chris did also. And a few other people made some, some victims' impact statements. Terrell um, didn't look at us. And Nathan didn't either, except at one point when my son Chris said to Nathan, you lost your brother too, because Nathan had a brother who drowned when they were growing up. You lost your brother too, but yet you still did this to my brother. And then he said, so now all that's left is for us to become brothers. And that made Nathan cry which was huge because it showed his humanity. You know, he, he could be touched and he was touched. And, and then they were taken away. And I, tr I called the chaplains at both prisons and told them, you know, that I really wanted them to know that we're praying for them every day and that when they're ready, we're ready. We haven't heard from them. 
Oh, you still haven't after all those years. No. And I wish we would. I want that. I want so much for them to say, we're changed. Like the gentleman in your story. Um, we've, you know, they've been in prison for 24 years. And that I'm hoping and praying that that time has been productive for them, that they could be good. They could really be productive in prison. They can help others. And and that's what I want to hear so much from them, but not yet. Oh, let me change the course of the conversation just a little. Sure. I'm at the State House Wednesday. I'm listening to a testimony in favor of repealing Ohio's death penalty. Questioning the executive director of the organization called Ohioans to Stop Executions is a state representative from, I think, Cincinnati, and I think she's a former police officer. And she's not too much in love with this bill. Mm. And she brings up a couple murders that I wasn't familiar familiar with, but these were exceptionally gruesome cases. And she keeps banging away about talking to the family. How do I give them justice? And so she's equating capital punishment with justice. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't think you're talking about justice. I think you're talking about vengeance. But my thoughts aside, what would you tell that state representative? Justice to me is you know balancing what was what became imbalanced. If a person like Brian is taken from us, a, a good young man who wanted to continue to do good, how do you put that good back into society that was taken from us? How do you do that? If you can figure out a way to do that, then you've balanced the scales of justice. Taking the life of somebody else is in no way, in my mind, no way at all a way to bring justice. Justice to me would be when Terrell and Nathan can say, we did the most horrible thing anybody could ever do, and we are so sorry, and we're going to spend the rest of our life trying to bring good back into the world that Brian would have brought into the world. That would be justice. The death penalty, you know, first of all, is not necessary. We have prisons. We have plenty of ways to protect society from somebody who might be dangerous or violent. We have no right, in my mind, to take life, guilty life or innocent life. We owe every human being the dignity of time, to have time on earth to make up for what they've done so that they can go to heaven. See, I believe that Brian and Aaron want to be the first ones to greet Terrell and Nathan in heaven one day. I think they want to say, welcome, brother. I saw a um, uh, a quote attributed to you that that's along these lines. And uh, it, you're making the point that you've forgiven these two boys, but that doesn't mean they should not be punished. And you said, I think forgiveness doesn't mean that they can be excused for what they did or that they shouldn't be punished. 
Forgiveness means refusing to have any anger or hatred or bitterness or revenge. And because we are Christians, we do something good for somebody who hurt us. The best thing I could do is to pray for them, and I do. And, and um, you know, it's exactly what you're talking about. So will they have an opportunity to rejoin society? Ultimately, they were convicted in a Pennsylvania court, so I'm not familiar with the Pennsylvania criminal system, but is there a chance for parole? Their sentence is life in prison without the possibility of parole. That's both of their sentences, plus 56 years in Ohio for the break-in and the assault and they call it kidnapping, you know, taking them in the car. So unless a miracle happens, mm-hmm. I don't see how they could be paroled. Um, and that's sad. That That's really sad because they could be totally different people. I hope they are. I hope they're not. It, it mind, I hope their mindset isn't still at. They were only 19 years old also. I hope they're not back at that 19 year old age of you know, life isn't valuable and that kind of thing. I hope and pray for that. Um, I I don't know if the only parole will be, you know, once they die and they're paroled f- from this earth. I don't know, but I, I want the best for them. Rachel, I also saw um, that you purchased the home that uh, Brian was living in at the time. What was your thought process behind that? That first summer after Brian died was the most horrible, painful time ever. And I could barely go out of the house, um, which could be good or bad because it, I was thinking so much, thinking, thinking, and just heartbroken. And I thought about the house, and I pictured Brian on that couch so many times. And, you know, I knew his blood had been spilled in that house. And I thought, now is it going to just be turned right back into another rental, a off-campus rental, and just another house? And I, I, I couldn't take that. So um, I wanted it to become. It's 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 right on the corner of two streets, um, and so I wanted it to become like a beacon of hope for people. That yes, something horrible happened here, but now good is coming out of it. And so the gentleman who owned the house was very good and sold it to us. And we were able to um, turn it into a place where students who couldn't afford room and board could live in the house and go to Franciscan University then. So it cut down on their uh, expenses. And it turned out that it that a lot of this, those students were priests from other countries who would come to study at Franciscan, but came with nothing, and they were able to live at the house. Now there's a group of, uh, a revolving group of students who live there, and their purpose is to befriend the children in that neighborhood. They have cookouts for them and gatherings on the near front porch and try to keep uh, the children in that neighborhood. You realize that everything you advocate is not politically popular in the minority position. And you must, when you look at the news every day, just shake your head and say, this is what, this is the, the, the struggle of Brian 
versus Nathan only on a world scale. Yes. Or, or am I exaggerating? No, you're not exaggerating because every single violent act creates this t- terrible, you know, repercussion of pain and then more violence and hatred and anger. So you're not exaggerating at all. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking when a child who comes to our center at 10 years old and then gets put in juvenile for something at 12 years old and then is ends up in adult prison at 18 years old, that breaks my heart. That tells me we failed. That tells me we have so much more to do. You know, it tells me we're still not who we should be so that we can help children. And so it's a never ending cycle of violence and it's frustrating. And all I can do is remember that, you know, even our Lord was a victim of violence. I, I mentor a man who was in prison for 30 years, not wow. for, not for murder, but as I like to joke, uh, for his zealous entrepreneurial skills, all of which concerned illegal activities. Mm. <laughs> and when I talked to him and he talks about his childhood, it is hardly different than anything you've said about the yeah. kids who you are fostering yeah. on the West side. I, it's, it's so true. You know, the parents, people have said to me, why aren't you doing something to help parents? to teach parents how to parent. I think that's much more difficult than what we're doing, even though what we're doing is so hard. Because when you become a parent, especially if you're a teenage parent, it's been in my experience that they don't want to be told what to do. They think they know what to do. And so it's very difficult to change their mindset. And plus, they've been raised by teenage parents. So it's a cycle that they're in. Um, So the best thing we can do, we realize, is to start with children younger and younger. And Mm. the longer they're around us, maybe the more impact we might have. But we have to remember, they go home, you know, every night to that that situation and so it's hard it's hard for them god bless these children how they how they survive to me the children are real champions you know they they come to the center or they come to the farm and they're playing and if you walked into the center or came to the farm you would not know these are children from the inner city they look like children who are just playing and having fun they have been able to forget for a few hours what their home life is like, what their neighborhood is like, what their local school is like. And and they can just be kids, but they can only do that for a few hours. We have to get to the point where they can do that day and night. A little seven-year-old said to me yesterday, Miss Rachel, is the West Side a dangerous place? And I thought, he's only seven, and he's starting to realize where he lives. And that breaks your heart. How do you answer that to a seven-year-old? Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Right. You know, yeah, it's heartbreaking. 
How can um, can people help you if they want to? How can they get involved in your organization? Well, they can go to our website, Brian Muha Foundation, and it's B R I A N M U H A Foundation dot org. We have so many volunteer opportunities, and we're always in need of volunteers because we have very little money. <laughs> so we can't pay anybody, although we have been able to hire four of our, we call them Run the Racers, who have grown up in Run the Race and are now in their early 20s. And they work with us because they want to, they know what life has been like for them. And they want to help the children in their neighborhoods now. So we we are able to have a few people on staff, you know, but everybody else is a volunteer. And that would mean from volunteering every day if somebody wanted to, to volunteering once a month or to having a food drive or a clothing drive or just organize a party for the kids or organize a field trip, um, help in the office. There's so many ways people can help. Monetarily is always nice and always welcome. <laughs> you know, in talking to you, uh, uh, I think that human nature is is we fight back. We 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 default to violence. Anger is such a motivating uh, emotion. Uh, forgiveness for you has motivated you to make a difference, and it's it's inspiring to me and. Um, I thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you both. Rachel, you're, uh, you merit the title I give to very few people, which is you are an army of one. <laughs> God bless you. God bless you too. Thank you. Thank you. Our thanks to WOSU and our sound engineer, Dalton Jones. If you like what you've heard today, tell a friend. We want this show to be more than just us. We want it to be all of us. We'll be back in another week or so with another social justice issue. So long. Mm -hmm.